Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to get your Bibles out, open to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this is our final morning here in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Next week begins Advent. Um, so we got four weeks there in Advent leading up to Christmas Day. Uh, but this, that's not, that's, that's next week. This is still uh, end of Sermon on the Mount. So this is Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So, like I said, this morning we are wrapping up our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and so we have just these two little verses here at the end of chapter 7 to kind of get through And these verses, I mean, technically would not be a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not preach them. But Matthew, it gives a little commentary, right? After Jesus gives this sermon to the the listeners that we've worked through now for for 26 weeks, 25 weeks. Matthew gives this little commentary regarding the reaction of his listeners to the sermon that has just been given them. And honestly, as we've worked through this over the past several weeks, you know, what has been your reaction to this portion of Scripture? Have you been challenged? There are many challenging things written to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you possibly been encouraged uh, to what it looks like to love neighbor, what it looks like to live for the king? Have you been sobered? Like there's some really hard things spoken about in the Sermon on the Mount. All about the Sermon on the Mount as though it's this great teaching block coming from Jesus. And then you want to, okay, let's actually read it. There are some very scary, it is not just uh, the golden rule and judge not and, you know, be merciful. There's a lot more in this sermon that is very sobering. Have you found yourself maybe inspired? We've tried to say from the get-go that the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be a sermon regarding how the king's people live like the king's people, right? This is not a to-do list to be read on how you become one of the king's people, but it is a, a very clear teaching on if you are the king's people, if you are part of the family of God, this is what it looks like to live for the king in the world. So I hope that the Spirit has done some work in your hearts knocking away false ideas that you've had, maybe permissions for sins that you've guarded that they have been blown up maybe, or maybe hypocritical religion that you've guarded of, I'll put on this face, but really my heart is far from God. Maybe some of those areas have been exploded or exposed, and the negative work of the call of Christ has, has caused you to treasure the gospel. Because it is the gospel that both forgives you of your sin and calls you to live for Him. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me and the life I live I no longer live by my for myself but in faith for the one who loved me and gave himself for me that sort of of gospel call to
to live a life not for yourself, but for your king. But I want us to notice something peculiar. The, the call ultimately from the Sermon on the Mount and from the words of Jesus are not to just merely live your life according to the king's ways, but to live your life for the king himself, for Jesus, the one who is speaking. He is not just giving us this list of here's how you live for me. It's far more radical. This is why they're astonished. Because he isn't just saying, here's how you live according to my ways. He's calling them, here's how you live for me. The pinnacle is not living according to his ways. The pinnacle, the ways that he's spoken or, or regarding his teachings well. The astonishing thing is that the call is to live for him, for Jesus. Which brings us to, I think, an important observation regarding these two verses. The hearers are shocked. They are astonished at Jesus' teachings. Matthew records that this astonishment is because, look at the text, right? Jesus taught differently. He taught as one who had authority, not like their scribes. The way he was teaching was distinct. And here's the distinction, right? The scribes and other religious leaders of the day would interpret the law or, or say something along the lines of, this is what the Lord commands. And you get that a lot, hopefully, like when you attend church. Like if you, you want your pastor to say things like, this is what God's word says. This is what God has spoken. We ought to obey it. If you ever get a pastor who begins to say, this is what I say, you should obey it. That's a real red flag. But Jesus does exactly that. He doesn't just say, here's what I say, or here's what God thinks, obey it. Jesus takes his identity up a notch, and he's like, here's what I say. Here's what I say. And so they're astonished because he doesn't teach like other approved teachers of the day. He's not pointing to God and his truth. He's pointing to himself and the truth. And it's astonishing to them. It's authority at a different level. Who here knows the Pythagorean theorem? Isn't that a fun? Everyone, love the Pythagorean theorem. I had this slide up, Aiden was like, what's the Pythagorean theorem doing up here? The Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And I might as well have just spoke a totally different language for 50% of you. My wife is like, I don't, even, I don't even care what that means. Not only does she not know what that means, she doesn't even care to know. Don't try to explain it to her later. She doesn't want to know. But it's a mathematical equation, right, on finding the hypotenuse of a, of a right triangle. When you know both the right leg and the left leg, you can figure out the hypotenuse by this formula, putting in the right, correct uh, factors, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's a very practical, very helpful if you're trying to, to make sure you got a right angle at any uh, intersection. You can measure off the hypotenuse to make sure everything's all square. Okay, so it's the, it's the Pythagorean theorem. How many people absolutely don't care and have no idea what I did? <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. All right, great, that's great. That's, that's what I wanted, that's what I knew would happen. But did you know this? But, but my point is, this is a mathematical proof that works. If you, if you take this and you input the right factors, you will get the right result. It's the Pythagorean theorem. It's a teaching that exists. Pythagoras lived 500-ish B.C., so 2,500 years ago. 
great philosopher, also had a really interesting theory on music, like breaking down the actual, the frequency of it, and harmonies actually double mathematically. It's fascinating. But anyway, so P Pythagoras, it really is, but Pythagoras, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try, so what's, what's amazing about Pythagoras, I'll go a little further, is that he lives at a time when abstract thinking was not done. So we're all very comfortable with like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Even if you don't like Pythagorean theorem, you know 2 plus 2 is 4. That's an abstract concept. Because you couldn't, in 500 BC, look out and see two ships, two ships, that makes four ships, right? That makes sense. But to do the computing abstractly of, of 2 plus 2 equals 4, not, not out in the world where you could see, but to do it all in your head, was like next level thinking. We're all used to it now because we teach math in the modern age or whatever, when the enlightenment's happened, so we, we have our mathematical proofs and all this stuff. But back then, when he's just kind of really abstracting, it's incredible. Okay, so that's one detail about Pythagoras. That's kind of interesting. The other incredible part is this. Did you know Pythagoras was born without fingers or toes? And that the reason why he was so good at abstracting facts is because he was never able to count on his fingers and toes. That's totally not true. <laughs> that, that, that I made, that last part I totally made up. I had, Pythagoras actually had all his fingers and toes. But let's say he didn't. Do you know what that doesn't change in you knowing Pythagoras? It doesn't change his theorem. That's good. You don't have to know him to know his theorem. Malachi, don't you, did I, did I sucker you in? You thought it was tough? I still don't. <laughs> exactly. It still doesn't matter. Huh? <laughs> it doesn't. So my point is, when it comes to so many things, so many teachings, it doesn't really matter who taught them if what they're teaching is true. You can take this Pythagorean theorem. You can know all kinds of false things about Pythagoras. It isn't going to matter when it comes to his teaching. If you just hold to the teaching, it's going to be okay. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not like that. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a collection of teachings that if we just embody the teachings or we take away these certain principles and apply them to our life, that somehow does the trick. That is not Jesus' point. It is not just knowing his, his teaching. Jesus is not just pointing to, here's my teaching, take it and run with it and live your life according to my teaching. Jesus is pointing ultimately to himself. He's saying, here I am, come with me, follow me. And yes, there's a body of teaching, but to divorce that teaching apart from the great teacher is to miss the whole point. So our point in equipping all of Christ's people to worship him with all of their lives is not just giving you life principles to go out and apply to your life like some sort of self-help gurus. It is to point you to the one, the, the real Jesus, and to put cling your life to him. This is what Jesus, this is who Jesus is. Yes, this is what he's teaching, but ultimately it points to who he is. And what we need is not just a good teaching. It's not, Jesus is not merely a good teacher pointing us to God. This is what makes this comment so interesting. Jesus is not merely a good teacher pointing to God. He is a great teacher pointing to himself. Pointing to himself. What we need 
is, are not new teachings. We need the teacher. We need Jesus himself. Christianity is not about better life principles. Though there are good life principles, Proverbs are in there, so there's lots of good logical things for a successful life. But it's all, if it's divorced from the teacher, it's all pointless. It's all pointless. Jim mentioned this uh, C.S. Lewis quote last week that, that is appropriate to this end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I won't quote all of it, but there's just a, a little bit that's, that, that C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about this reality that Jesus was not, Jesus, a, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing, if, if a man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said, he would not be a great moral teacher. Anyone who would teach these things that Jesus taught would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, which is a great line, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And the categories given to us, often you'll see it framed this way. Either Jesus is a liar, he's making stuff up, which doesn't really, isn't really consonant with his character, that he's just trying to deceive people. When you read the Gospels, this isn't the kind of person that just lies about himself. Or else he's a lunatic. It's actually insane to think such things. Or else he actually is Lord. Liar, lunatic, or else he actually is Lord. Where do we see this? So we're still here in the Sermon on the Mount. And let's just look. At, I got four places I want us to look at just to kind of see how Jesus is not just pointing to his teaching, but his teaching is pointing to himself. So we've got um, the Beatitudes. Back in chapter 6, um, or back in chapter 5, excuse me. Back in chapter 5, uh, the last beatitude, sort of there, verse 11 of chapter 5. Jesus says this. These are all the blessings, right? The beatitudes. Blessed are you. He says, blessed are you when others revile you, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. Where? In heaven. If they persecute you, for whose account? For Jesus's. And so, like, it's one thing for me to say, great blessing comes for you if you cling to the truth of Christ and the world persecutes you. That's great for me to say, that Jesus promises a blessing for that. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, blessed are you if you cling to this truth about God and, and persevere in the midst of suffering. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted for me, for my name's sake. Blessed, persecuted on my account. That's when your reward is great. Where? In heaven. Jesus is not just pointing out great teaching. He's pointing to himself. He's saying what you need to do is not just cling to my truth, which you do, but cling to me because I am the truth. Do you hear how that ratchets up the teaching? That ratchets up the, the reality that Jesus is laying out for us. The second is in all the, the six uh, antithesis statements of where he says, you know, you, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, right? Over and over again, six times, you've heard it said this way, 
And he doesn't like a scribe would come along and say, you've heard it this way, but you know, I'm going to tell you, I think it's more like this. He says, you've heard it this way, but I say to you. Jesus is not just a good teacher pointing to God. He's a great teacher pointing to himself. There's a higher level of call here. The third, just quickly getting through these, the third is back in chapter 7. So chapter 6 is a lot about the fatherhood of God. But then chapter 7, verse we, we just have gone through these over the past few weeks. But chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who says to me, not about God, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, say to me, to Jesus, Lord, Lord, on what day? The day when they're before God the Father in heaven? On that great day? They're going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, just this is, this is what Jesus it blows your mind if you think about it. Because this is a man standing before them saying, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not just a good teacher holding up life principles for you. He's the great teacher saying, look to me. He, at this great final day, it's, it's, it's astonishing to think about this great final day of judgment that every good Jew would have known about, the coming day of the Lord. You read the, the minor prophets, they're a blast to read through because there's just so much crazy things going on. But they're talking about, the, I love the book of Joel, and it's, it's this really focus on this coming great day of the Lord. There's this coming judgment where God is going to wipe out his enemies and save and rescue his people for their eternal joy. There's this coming day of the Lord. And Jesus, he says that that coming day of the Lord, guess who's going to be there? He says, I'm going to be there. And I'm going to say, either I knew you or I never knew you. He's not just saying, these things I've taught you, I'll say, you didn't cling to the things we taught about. He's saying, he's saying himself. He is the centerpiece of, of this sermon. He's the centerpiece, the focal point that he's calling them to. And then lastly, chapter 7, just the last little paragraph here, Jim covered it great last week, where he says, everyone who then hears these words of mine, It isn't, it isn't hear these words about God. It's, it's hear these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock, right? And then we know the winds, people build them on the sand, the winds come and they blow that house down and great is the fall of it. Where have we heard language like that? Someone's words who never fail. Someone's words are such a strong foundation that they never disappear. What, what word um, will, will never fail? And you hear it quite a bit. It was actually our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 40 or, or 1 Peter chapter 1 at the end of it, where the scriptures have this refrain, refrain right? Most of you can probably say it with me. You don't have to. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
So this is, this is a common phrase, like we, we know this in Scripture. There is one sure foundation, the word of the Lord. It stands forever. What God has decreed will happen. It is a safe place to bank your life. It's a nail in a sure place. The prophets use that language like it's a, it's a nail that when you hang your coat on, it's going to stay there. It's a nail in a sure place. The word of the Lord is a sure foundation. And what does Jesus say about his words? They are a sure foundation. Jesus is not pointing to just his teaching. He's pointing to himself. And so we're pressing upon that and what the crowd gets, what the crowd gets and why they're astonished is because Jesus is not just trying to lift up a good teaching, a life applications or certain ways to order your life around concepts. He's saying, look at me. Order your life around me. I am God. Worship and cling to me. This is why the listener was astonished. Don't become so comfortable with the, the cultural familiar, uh, you know, with familiarity with a figure named Jesus. I mean, we live in, in uh, you know, post-Christendom or whatever, but certainly in our region, we are a very Christianized region where you will pretty soon, some people already have their Christmas lights up, Christmas trees are up. You'll see all sorts of flags on, on doors. Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Keep Christ in Christmas, right? We'll see that. We'll see nativities in all sorts of yards. I'll put one up myself, but they'll be covered very Christianized. So there's, there's all this familiarity with the figure named Jesus. And I affirm all of it. Yeah, keep Christ in Christmas. Well, you know, but Jesus is the reason for the season. I absolutely affirm that. But do you really know what that means? <laughs> that's, ra- that's, that's radical. Jesus, Jesus, God, the second member of the Trinity, incarnates. He puts on flesh to accomplish his purposes. How often does the reality of the incarnation, the revealing of who Jesus truly is, how often does it leave us astonished? That's when you've seen it rightly. That's when you've seen it rightly. That where it is not, this is just so common in our, in our sort of productivity and, you know, sort of get stuff done, individualized culture, life tips, life hacks. For some reason, my six-year-old girl will Google like life hacks. Like, you don't need a life hack. You're six. Like, how does she even know life hacks exist? But, you know, it's like, I don't know, some trending thing. I don't know what. And Christianity, what, where are the life hacks to help us get better, to help us with this and that and make these certain areas of my life better? Listen, if that, I do think that, that Jesus absolutely is a benefit There are so many goods that come from following Jesus. But goods aside, and if they all disappear, the chief good is having Jesus. The chief good is Jesus himself. And the gravity of that, not his teaching, him. Him. This is not just some good teacher. These are not mere good ideas to adopt into your lifestyle. These are not simple principles to try out in your life and see if they work. You know, let's, let's, let's give the Jesus thing a shot and see if it makes this area of my life better. That is not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. This is the Lord of the universe calling for you. If I could be so humble as to say, calling for you right now in this room. To not give yourself to his teachings, to not give yourself to his life principles, 
but to give yourself to him as the Lord of the universe, the Savior of mankind. God incarnate, to give yourself to him. Not for, the, not for the, the benefit of certain circumstances. If that happens, great. Not to, not to resolve these certain issues, but to give yourself to him because he is God. He is the Lord of the universe and he is deserving of all of our worship. This is the Lord of the universe calling for you to abandon your kingdom, your purposes, your dream fulfillment, and to surrender to the king and to his kingdom and to live for him. So where does this leave us? Well, we all, when confronted with this reality, we must take our stance. It will not do to simply try out these principles in your life and see if they work for you. This is not, it will not do to merely take up adherence to some level of his teachings. This is not a simple matter of, will you follow the tradition that Jesus laid out? Here's what Christianity does around here. Here's the traditions that we have. We honor these certain things. We, we do these certain principles. We hang out with these certain kind of peoples. We avoid these certain activities and we do these certain activities. It will not be enough to have adherence to his tradition. Something far more serious is at stake. Will you cling? You. Could use the you language. <laughs> will you cling not to his teachings, but to something far more than that? Will you cling to the teacher himself? Jesus, I'm here for you. I'm here because of what you have done for me. You are the king. We must deal with the reality of Jesus as he is, not a sanitized version of his teaching. But this is also, this is great news at the same time. Because our depravity is so total, our sinfulness is so total, it's, we think, well, if Darren, if we just get my list of 10 things, wouldn't that be easier? I mean, give my whole life to Jesus, he's the king, and my whole self is to be given to him? Why can't I just get a list of 15 things and just go out and go by, pick and choose certain principles? You know why that's a terrible, that's bad news? You will fail at that every time, and it will end you further and further and further away from him. The gospel is not a list of principles to uphold that you might find yourself closer to Jesus. The gospel is that you are failing at all the principles <laughs> at coming closer to him and a savior is offered to you. God has come to rescue you out of your failed project to draw you to himself. Jesus himself has put on flesh to rescue his people. We, to be given a list is to be crushed. To cling to your list is foolishness. But to be given a Savior and to cling to Him is Holy Spirit-given wisdom. So today, hear His teaching? Yes. Seek to live as your King would have you live? Yes. But most of all, hear Him and cling to Him for who He is, the King and Savior of all who turn to Him by faith. The proper response to this is only one response. You know, with Pythagoras, sorry, we'll go back there. Just, it's great to appreciate the guy. It's great to respect him, honor him, to be thankful for him, to talk about him, to respect him, to share his teachings with others. And you should also do those things about Jesus, right? It's great to talk about all these great teachers, but Jesus alone is worthy of your worship. 
of your worship. Worship is a category shift. It's giving him reverence and adoration. Pythagoras is dead. Jesus is alive. And he is worthy of all of our worship. Worship when you pray to him, not just a checking off of the box of prayer time, but cherishing him in the midst of it. When you read your Bible, it's not just a transfer of information. It's the adoration of the words of your maker, of your savior, and of your sustainer. And when we sing to him, it isn't just the resuscitation of good words. It's heartfelt praise to the one who is not just a great teacher, not just the abstract performer of some duties on our behalf, but heartfelt praise because Jesus is God. Because the Sermon on the Mount is the message on how the king's people ought to live like the king's people, we should seek to live it out, to love our neighbor, to trust our king, and to worship him, giving all of our lives to him alone. Let's pray.